This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the GEM state. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare of you and me. O is for the outcomes, that's the story we can tell. ECHO all together, well, you know what that spells. Echo Today's episode features a presentation by Dr. Nicole Fox, psychiatrist at St. Luke's Health System in Boise, on the topic of perinatal mood disorders. This lecture was recorded on May 26th, 2021, as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. Here to introduce today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Hello, hello. Welcome to Echo Idaho Perinatal Substance Use Disorders. I'm Lachelle Smith, the director at Echo Idaho. I'm happy to facilitate our conversation today. We're really pleased to have a talk on perinatal mood disorders by Dr. Fox, who was a psychiatrist with St. Luke's Health System and many other things. All right, and the floor is yours. Awesome. I'm Nicole Fox, and I'm a psychiatrist here at St. Luke's. So today we'll talk about perinatal depression and psychosis, or the primary mood disorders in pregnancy and in the perinatal period. We'll have a really brief case, and then we'll talk about the different mood disorders. We will address some specific postpartum elements. We'll talk about breastfeeding. We will go through a few treatment considerations and give you some resources. So a little bit about mood disorders in pregnancy, um, about 20% of pregnant women suffer from a mood disorder or anxiety during pregnancy. Women with a history of psychiatric illness who discontinue their medications are at the, a higher risk of relapse of their mood disorder. For example, in one study of women with depression, women who stopped their treatment were five times as likely to have a relapse of depression than those who continued their medication, for example, um, an antidepressant or SSR. Just as an FYI, the ABCD and X category system is being phased out. The ABCDX categories that Dr. Fox is referring to here are also known as the FDA pregnancy categories. This is a five-letter labeling system that was implemented by the FDA in 1979 to indicate the potential level of risk a particular medication posed to a pregnant patient. It's been widely criticized as not being particularly helpful, and it can be misleading at times. Instead, a new system that has more comprehensive information about risks to mother and fetus and how risk may change in pregnancy is being utilized. So just a really quick case, we have a 32-year-old woman with a history of childhood sexual trauma who has had a history of postpartum depression. She's pregnant with her third child. She endorses low mood, poor concentration, decreased appetite, hypersomnia, poor motivation, and she's at uh, 21 weeks gestation and she's reporting these things to her midwife. 
So it was a planned pregnancy. She is eager for a baby girl and uh, recently found out that she is having a girl. She um, has been increasingly down, having some poor concentration in the last three weeks. She generally isn't very trustful of Western medicine and doesn't like to take any kind of medication. She does have a history of previous gestational diabetes, and she's really worried that this could happen again. There are no new stressors. She's financially stable. She's in a good relationship. Uh, First two children are easy, and they're meeting their milestones. That's a classic case of um, someone that you would want to pay attention to uh, and assess her for depression. She does have a history of postpartum depression. So um, what does depression look like in the perinatal period or in pregnancy? It's the same diagnosis as depression outside of the perinatal period, except we add a specifier with peripartum, meaning around pregnancy, onset. And to get this diagnosis, you need five or more of the following for at least two weeks. It has to represent a change in function, one of which must one of these five must be either depressed mood or anhedonia, meaning loss of interest. And um, the symptoms must cause distress or impairment. The criteria for peripartum depression Dr. Fox is referring to here is as follows. One, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. 2. Decreased interest in activities. 3. Weight gain or loss or change in eating. 4. Insomnia or hypersomnia. 5. Psychomotor retardation or agitation. 6. Fatigue or loss of energy. 7. Feelings of worthlessness or guilt. 8. Poor concentration or indecisiveness. And nine, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation, or suicide attempts. So in that case, the criteria that that patient meets, she has a depressed mood nearly every day. She has decreased interest in activity. She's had a change in her appetite. She's sleeping more, hypersomnia. There can be psychomotor retardation or agitation, you know, like pacing at night would be psychomotor agitation. Um, Sitting and staring, you know, at the floor would be psychomotor retardation. Fatigue or loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness and guilt, poor concentration or indecisiveness is when you get to the grocery store and you're faced with a thousand different cereal options and you just can't decide or which peanut butter to get. That is kind of amplified in depression. And then, of course, very worrisome recurrent thoughts of death or suicide or suicide attempts. What does bipolar disorder look like in pregnancy or in the postpartum period? Um, So a person must meet criteria for a manic episode. You know, actually to have bipolar disorder, you only need to have ever had mania. You don't need to have had depression, although most people have had depression who have mania. Uh, manic episode may have been preceded by or followed by hypomania or depression. Commonly, what we'll see if someone who has a mania, once they crash, they crash really hard and go into a depressive episode. But you can have a depressive episode and then transition into a manic episode or have what's called a mixed episode as well, where you have features of both mania and depression. So in mania, we have a distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated expansive or irritable mood and abnormally or persistently increased goal-directed activity or energy lasting at least one week. And it must be present most days of the week 
most of the day, every day or nearly every day. And if someone ends up hospitalized for it, even if it would make meet criteria for hypomania, which is four days or more, and doesn't necessarily have to have a big loss of function. Um, if someone gets hospitalized from this, they, it automatically qualifies as a type one, as a mania, a full mania. So during this mood disturbance, three of the following must be present and four if the mood is only irritable and represent a noticeable change from their usual behavior. The criteria for a manic episode Dr. Fox is referring to here is as follows. One, inflated self-esteem or grandiosity. Two, decreased need for sleep. Three, more talkative, pressured. Four, flight of ideas, racing thoughts. Five, distractibility. Six, increased goal-directed behavior or psychomotor agitation. And seven, excessive high-risk behaviors. I think that is one of the things I see most often confused in bipolar diagnoses. People um, will often hear someone isn't sleeping or has, you know, racing thoughts and think, oh, the person has mania. That's not actually true. If someone always has racing thoughts or lots of thoughts, that could be anxiety, that could be ADHD. Uh, that can be a number of different things. Likewise, if someone isn't sleeping but wants to sleep, that's not mania. People who have mania don't really need as much sleep as normal. So if you normally sleep eight hours a day and suddenly you feel fantastic after three hours of sleep and that's been going on for a couple of weeks, that's concerning for mania. It's not that these are folks who are laying in bed thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I could sleep. I wish I could sleep. I'm so tired. Someone give me Ambien. No, these are people who are like, Oh my gosh, I'm, I've got energy. I'm going to rebuild that deck I've been thinking about building and I'm going to do it straight for four days. I'm going to forget about work. I'm just going to build that deck. I don't need any sleep. I don't need any caffeine. This is fantastic. Or there's the irritable version of it, but typically also doesn't need much sleep. So people who have mania have an inflated sense of self-esteem and grandiosity. I once had a patient at the VA in Seattle who thought that he was in the hospital at the VA at the behest of President Obama. And he would go congratulate the cooking staff in the cafeteria every day on their well-made meals. Um, he believed he was directly there to give them that congratulations from President Obama. So uh, inflated sense of self-esteem, grandiosity. You may hear I have like 20 different degrees. I'm also a surgeon. I'm a, you know, an architect. I'm a lawyer. That happens a fair amount too in true mania. There's a, that decreased need for sleep. People are more talkative and pressured. Pressured is generally, um, by definition, uninterruptible. Some folks can be fast talkers and be interruptible. Pressured is not interruptible. Flight of ideas means that one idea to the next, uh, racing thoughts, distractibility, increased goal-directed behavior like building that new deck, um, and excessive high-risk behaviors. This is different than what we see in personality disorders as well. Um, the excessive high-risk behaviors is impulsive in both, but in bipolar disorders, typically that is going to be a high-risk behavior that happens episodically. 
And it isn't to fulfill a whole, like in personality disorders, someone who is acting impulsively and doing high risk behaviors or feeling a general sense of emptiness and internal sense of emptiness that they have. That's not the case with bipolar disorder. They're, you know, having affairs and, um, doing substances because it feels good. It's exciting and consequences be damned. And of course, the mood disturbance can cause impairments. So then what is postpartum? Uh, let's talk just a minute about what happens specifically in the postpartum period. So postpartum blues happens to about 50 to 85% of women appears in the immediate postpartum period, peaks on day four or five after delivery. Symptoms include mood lability, tearfulness, anxiety, or irritability. It doesn't really interfere with the ability to function, and there's no treatment required, although it could herald an incoming or impending mood episode. What does postpartum depression look like then? That's a little bit different. This can happen to about 10 to 15% of women. Um, emerges generally over the first months of pregnancy. Often um, the person has had depression in pregnancy and it is clinically indistinguishable from other depression, which is why we use the exact same criteria. Frequently, it's comorbid with anxiety and OCD with intrusive thoughts. And then we can use the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale. I believe that's sometimes used in our outpatient clinics. What is postpartum psychosis? This is different. So this is a very severe form of postpartum illness. This generally presents within 48 to 72 hours of delivery. Most women um, with postpartum psychosis develop it within two weeks. It's usually actually in the first couple of days, like I said. Um, this is most likely representing an episode of bipolar disorder, not an exacerbation of the postpartum depression, which takes longer to develop usually. Um, even in those with no history of mania, it can look like a manic or a mixed episode. We have early signs of restlessness, irritability, and insomnia. And that can evolve rapidly into shifting depression or elated mood, confusion, disorientation, erratic, disorganized behavior, delusional beliefs centering around the infant, auditory hallucinations that can be command. You know, no one can take care of your baby as well as you can. So, you know, you and the baby should go to heaven you know, and protect the baby at the extreme. Uh, there's a risk of suicide or infanticide because this is a psychiatric emergency. So some causes and risk factors, um, rapid changes in the hormonal environment of mom. There's a hypothesis that a certain subset of women are just really sensitive to these shifts. Those with prior mood episodes, uh, like postpartum depression, maybe at higher risk, depression in pregnancy, and then just any history of depression or bipolar disorder puts you at much higher risk. And then there's some psychosocial factors that may contribute to especially postpartum depression, not so much postpartum psychosis, um, those who have marital dissatisfaction or have stressful life events and poor social support. What do we do when people present with these conditions? We first want to rule out medical causes. We want to do a thorough evaluation, get their history, do a physical. That means an actual physical exam um, and routine lab evaluation, perhaps for thyroid dysfunction or anemia, depending on the clinical picture in front of you. In the mild case of postpartum depression, we can offer CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, and then if medication is indicated, then we typically want to start with an SSRI like Zoloft, which is sertraline, fluoxetine, or citalopram. Fluoxetine is Prozac, citalopram is Alexa. 
you know, these take a long time to work though. So we need to get them at a decent dose quickly. SSRIs are antidepressants and zeolytics and non-sedating. They're generally very well tolerated. We'll talk a little bit about their actual use and how to prescribe them. Bupropion is an acceptable alternative. SSRI is not tolerated. But sometimes people think bupropion must put people at risk of mania. Actually, it's the least likely to launch mania of the antidepressants we use. And then postpartum psychosis, again, that's an emergency. We want to get them right to the ER. Uh, it typically requires inpatient hospitalization, treatment with an antipsychotic, first and foremost, um, and it should be treated as an affective condition. Someone's asking, do you often recommend ECT? Often during our live echo sessions, attendees can ask questions of the presenters in the chat box without interrupting them. This question about ECT was asked in such a manner. For those who aren't familiar with this abbreviation, ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. ECT has exceptional remission rates and is considered very safe in pregnancy. It works very fast. We don't have access to much ECT in Idaho, but yes, it's absolutely indicated in severe postpartum depression or even in antepartum depression. There are a number of folks who think that exposing some, their child to SSRI is very concerning to them. And so ECT is an alternative, even though it's an intervention. Breastfeeding. So this is important to know because we do get a lot of folks who stop all medications. As soon as a person presents pregnant in front of them, the initial, the immediate thought is stop all meds. Ah, it's, you know, the baby's going to be harmed. And what we often forget is, oh, if mommy's harmed, that's no good for the mother-baby dyad development. And they need that for proper bonding. So often we hear the same thing about breastfeeding. Well, I want to breastfeed, so I got to ditch all of my you know, medications. It's not true. So all psychotropic medications are excreted into breast milk. And the concentrations vary widely, just like things cross the placenta, but they um, cross it at different levels and at different potencies. Infant's exposure depends on the dose, the mother's rate of metabolism, and the frequency and timing of feeding. Antidepressants, there's no evidence that they cause significant risk to infants, uh, long-term risks, and the amount of medication the infant's exposed to is very low. For bipolar disorder or bipolar illness, um, breastfeeding can be problematic, mostly because the sleep cycle becomes interrupted. And for people with mania or a history of bipolar disorder, we want them to sleep all night. Not sleeping is a risk factor for developing mania, and on-demand feeding disrupts that. At the same time, stopping bipolar affective disorder medications is not a good plan. So if the mom says, I am absolutely breastfeeding, don't stop their medications for bipolar disorder. Just use caution. So infants can become toxic from lithium or other mood stabilizers as they are excreted in levels of breast milk and infants metabolize these differently. So lithium is not one we generally want to use in breastfeeding. You can switch to an antipsychotic, but that I would do with extreme caution to avoid an episode. You definitely would not, in someone with bipolar disorder, want to withdraw a medication completely and then start a new one. You have to do kind of a cross taper. Treatment versus not, women may present with a history of illness or a new onset illness. The decision that you make with your patients need to weigh the risk of treatment on the mother and fetus against the risk of untreated psychiatric illness in mom and the impact on that relationship or on the newborn. There is significant morbidity associated with untreated psychiatric illness in mom to both mother and child. 
It's associated with less prenatal care, uh, increased substance use, such as alcohol and tobacco. And some studies do describe low birth weight and early delivery secondary to distress when there's untreated mental illness. In untreated depression and pregnancy, obviously increases the risk of depression in the postpartum period. So all medications, as we just said, cross the placenta. What is teratogenesis? This is when an agent interferes with the in utero development of the fetus. So teratogenesis with psychiatric medications is what we're talking about here. So there's a baseline major congenital malformation in newborns, about 2 to 4% in the U.S. Organ systems typically do develop in the first 12 weeks after conception. The challenge there is most people don't know that they are pregnant until like six, eight weeks, maybe even later. Neural tube folding closure and formation of the brain is happening in zero to four weeks and before people really know they're pregnant. And then most heart and great vessel formations happen between four to nine weeks. So if you're stopping medications and you found out someone's pregnant and they're, they're like 11 weeks pregnant, you're really in a situation of like, is it worth it to risk the mental health of mom? Uh, neonatal symptoms that we look for are the symptoms in the newborn. So there's a perinatal syndrome, which is the neonatal withdrawal from a medication or drug exposure toward the end of pregnancy or near delivery. So just a little bit more specifically about the medications that we use. A study of 2,500 SSRI-exposed infants found no increase in major malformations from baseline. Several meta-analyses of SSRI use in pregnancy showed no increase of major congenital malformations, with the exception of paroxetine, which is also called Paxil, which showed concern for septal defects. Most psychiatrists don't use Paxil anyway. It has a very short half-life, and if you don't take it at the exact same time every day, you risk withdrawal side effects. Other studies show no association with paroxetine. Small studies with bemlifaxine found no risk. Most commonly used in pregnancy, again, are those uh, three I mentioned earlier, fluoxetine, sertraline, and citalopram. Just a quick dive into that neonatal distress piece. Some studies indicate that babies who are exposed to SSRIs near delivery have a transient increase in crying, tremor, Restlessness and increased tone for one to four days after delivery. Raiders were not blinded to treatment status, so there is some concern for biased rating, but, you know, depressed and anxious moms contribute to neonatal outcomes. So even though we think, well, we don't want to have the baby in distress in days one, two, three, four or longer, tapering medication at the delivery time is not really a good strategy since it can increase your risk for postpartum depression and psychosis. So behavioral effects, and this is talking about later in life. Like if my child was exposed to Zoloft or sertraline in pregnancy, is it going to have a behavioral effect later in their life on them? Uh, it's really hard to study, but exposed controls in one study uh, showed no significant differences in IQ, temperament, behavior, reactivity, mood, distractibility, or activity level. And that supports the idea that SSRIs are not behavioral teratogens. TCAs, most people don't use them except for sleep at this point. We do just try to avoid TCAs when we can because they're cardiotoxic. And if you have a patient who has a history of suicide attempts, TCAs in high doses can cause significant problems. TCA is an abbreviation for tricyclic antidepressant. Bupropion, 3.9% 
50% of infants had major malformations. That's actually consistent with our unexposed baseline risk. So 4% is the high end of the baseline malformation risk we talked about earlier in the population. There's not a, a definitive association. So then bipolar disorder, again, high risk of episode in pregnancy. So how do we use the mood stabilizers? Lithium used to be that we would really avoid lithium in pregnancy due to concern for Epstein's anomaly. For those who may not be familiar with this condition, Epstein's anomaly is a rare congenital heart defect in which the heart's tricuspid valve is in the wrong position and the valve's flaps are malformed, resulting in a malfunctioning valve. That's considered to be a big overestimation. More recent data shows the risk is quite low. The thing to know about using lithium in pregnancy is that as a person's blood volume expands with pregnancy, for those of you who had children, you remember that the first two days you like are going to the bathroom nonstop to decrease your volume. What happens is in pregnancy, a patient needs more lithium because they've got a bigger volume and it's renally clear. But then as you deliver and get rid of all of your lithium, you urinate it out, literally. If you've left your patient at a high dose of lithium, you are going to really ding their kidneys and possibly give them an acute kidney injury. So you have to really drop that lithium dose at delivery if you're continuing lithium in a patient. Carbamazepine, we just don't do it. Uh, too high of a risk of neural tube defects. Depakote, I generally recommend, unless it's your last resort, to avoid this in um, all women of childbearing age because of the risk of neural tube defect. Lamotrigine, which is also known as lamictal, is often actually considered the most safe of all the mood stabilizers in pregnancy. Maybe a slight risk of cleft palate with that one. Antipsychotics are approved for maintenance and acute mania treatment. There's limited data, but there's no studies indicating malformation risk. So these are kind of preferred, particularly Haldol. And then the atypical antipsychotics are increasingly used and work very well, both in pregnancy and in postpartum period for, with breastfeeding. So quetiapine, that's Seroquel, Olanzapine, that's Cyprexa, Risperdone, that's Risperdol. So um, no differences in malformation risk have been uh, identified. Jerry, do you want to unmute and ask your question? Uh, yes, as always, uh, thank you for the presentation, Dr. Fox. This is Jerry Wilms speaking. Jerry is a physician and a regular ECHO participant. Um, I'm going to refer specifically to your case at the front end. Um, basically, um, if it's a new diagnosis in a patient with perinatal or postpartum and their symptoms are what I would vaguely describe as mild to moderate, and they're not already on meds. I completely agree that, you know, you don't want to be changing meds wholesale in the middle of all this. But if they're a new diagnosis, um, do you consider, um, I don't know whether to call them uh, complementary, alternative, uh, integrated therapies uh, that are non-pharmaceuticals or, or non-medication specifically? And if so, which ones would you consider? So I think the most important non-pharmaceutical intervention I recommend is better sleep for everyone. And so if that means someone needs to take melatonin, then that's what I would like them to do. Um, sleep makes everything better. 
Yep. So that's number one. Um, and then as far as specific vitamins, you know, I don't, our um, OBGYNs have uh, vitamin recommendations that they, they use. And I, I would not, um, you know, depending on the situation, they might have a certain vitamin they use and they have one without iron, they may have one with iron. Uh, I just would, I'm not going to recommend a lot of vitamins, to be honest with you or minerals or supplements other than get a little better sleep with your melatonin. Um, and then as far as therapy goes, I recommend therapy for as many people as are willing to go and get therapy. I'm a big believer in therapy. I believe that therapy works best with medication in anything other than mild cases. If it's mild enough that they're not meeting criteria for depression, then I, they are not meeting criteria for depression. Um, otherwise, because these medications take so long to work, I would like to have patients start both therapy and medications early because what I don't want to have is them get to the end of pregnancy and then tip them over into a really profound deep depression with the hormonal shifts. So that's my approach. Another question for you, Nicole. This is Dr. Allison Smith speaking here. Dr. Smith is a family medicine and addiction medicine physician, director of mental health at Delta Airlines, and panelist for Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. Um, I hear this um, common theme of, of really prioritizing mental health, um, you know, considering the very small likelihood of some of these outcomes that we are taught to worry about. And so this, this knee jerk reaction of switching up meds during pregnancy is, is not favorable. And, um, my question for you is maybe a tough one, but let's say you have like the rock star patient who's really thoughtful and planning ahead of a pregnancy. And let's say they're on a medication like a lithium for their bipolar or, or even like divalproex for their bipolar. Um, how do you approach that patient who comes to you ahead of pregnancy, planning a pregnancy and is on a potentially, potentially harmful medication that's working great for them. Like they've done well for years and stability um, and then planning this pregnancy. Does it, you know, do you, do you change medications to something maybe a little bit safer profile? Do you continue them and encourage them to prioritize something that's worked and that, you know, is, is um, given them some stability? That's a great question. And I think you asked me this question the last time I gave this talk and I said I was going to put something about pregnancy planning in. And again, I apparently need to take better notes of what I commit to doing. Um, so absolutely, if you have the, this is the best time to figure out how to manage someone's mental health, the, the planning of pregnancy phase. I think at least half the pregnancies in our country aren't planned. Um, so it's not going to work for everybody. Um, and I haven't seen data on this, but I suspect those with mental health conditions may, um, it, it may find the rate different <laughs> of unplanned pregnancies. I'm not sure. I just say that because especially for our folks with impulsivity as part of their diagnosis, um, we might run into trouble from time to time. Um, so absolutely, especially with the Depakote and probably with a lithium, a lithium, I'd be less ready to switch out if the person is really, really responsible and they, I have a good relationship with either their family practice doctor or their OBGYN uh, who can help manage that lithium shift toward the end of pregnancy. Um, 
but in the planning phase is great. It's, it's a great time to put in a referral for psychiatry because we know the waits are three months. Uh, and it's a great time to start having the conversation about, hey, you know, we know that you've had several significant manias in your lifetime. We want to make sure that doesn't happen to you by taking off the medications. But should we very cautiously try to transition you into something else if, if it's an appropriate medication to transition from like Depakote? That again was Dr. Nicole Fox, psychiatrist at St. Luke's Health System in Boise, presenting Perinatal Mood Disorders. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Season two of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. The contributing voices on today's episode were those of Nicole Fox, Allison Smith, Jerry Wilms, and Lachelle Smith. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. E-C-H-O all together